Good morning. We're looking at words that are lost in translation. When you go from Greek words to English words and English words to Greek words, sometimes the words mean different things. Sometimes a word that meant one thing at one time changes over time. And we're going to think this morning about the word, the world. And what does the Bible mean when it talks about the world? There is a verse that causes us to really want to try to figure out what it, what the Bible talks about when it talks about the world. This is what it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think we could say it's a pretty absolute statement. So the love of the world and the love of God oppose one another. The love of the world eclipses the love of God and the love of God eclipses the love of the world. Oftentimes, when people talk about loving the world, well, what have you heard when you talked about don't love the world? And oftentimes, most often, non-Christian things. Don't love the world. Don't love non-Christian things. Don't love non-Christian movies. Don't love non-Christian music. Don't love non-Christian things. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm saying that's normally the way what we hear when we somebody is talking about the world, because the love of the world is spiritually dangerous. So it's really important to be clear about what the Bible is referring to when it talks about the world. What exactly is the world when the Bible talks about don't love it? What does it mean to love the world? First goes on in John to say this, for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is really an operating system that is characterized by gratifying the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh. When we see something that we want, will go to any length to get it. That's the world's system. So the world is really about desire gratification. It's about wanting what we see, and it's about what pleases us if we were able to possess it. So if we want to kind of try to put it in a simple form, the world is about possessing what you want. It's about the desire to possess, and it doesn't stop at possessing what you want. Then it talks about parading what you possess. The Bible talks about the pride of life. So when you see something, you really want it. You go to the lengths that you need to go to to get it, and then you get it. And then when you get it, then you have to, you not only want it, you flaunt it. You know, have you seen this watch I have here? Have you seen this watch? And so I had to go to great lengths to get this watch. And now that I have it, it's not just enough for me to have the watch. Now what I have to do is show you my watch. And then, and when I see you smiling at my watch, that kind of makes me feel, whoa, hey, that's pretty good. I have a neat watch and I'd like to have it. That's kind of both of those things. It's about possessing what you want and parading what you possess. And that's really the world system. So biblically then, dealing with the world is somehow conditioning 
our need to get what we want. How do you do that? How do you not go after what you want? Is going after what you want a bad thing? Apparently, sometimes it can be. Let's talk about that. Try to be clearer, but let's tack this down. When we are driven to get what we want and then to parade what we possess, when we're driven to get what we want and parade what we possess, we are operating according to the world. Uh, Worldly values, again, oftentimes they are ascribed to what happens in non-Christian places, but worldly values fit comfortably in church context. It's possible to be in church, isn't it? To see what you want in a sacred setting and go after it? It's just not outside the doors of church. It can be inside the doors of church as well. Um, James points out, as he talks about the love of the world as well, look what it says. What causes quarrels and what causes causes fights among you? It's a great question. But James, when he's writing this, he's talking to Jewish Christians who have moved away from Jerusalem and now living out in the Roman Empire, and they're forming these little house churches. And when James is writing and saying what causes fights and quarrels among you, he's not talking about what's happening on the battlefield. He's he's talking about what's happening in the church. And what's happening in these, these congregations of small Jewish house churches, you could probably fit maybe in a big Roman house, 30 to 40 people, some in the dining room and really comfortable, the rest in the atrium. So that's what house churches were like, anywhere from 20, 30, 40 people. And what was happening in these house churches is that there's fighting and quarreling within house churches and between house churches. And so he asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What would be the normal answer to posing that in a, in a place where people are fighting? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, it's real easy what causes fights and quarrels among us. If you are believing one thing, and let's say you're believing, you believe one thing and you believe another. Okay? They ask you, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, they do. <laughs> I mean, I believe this and they believe that. And I ask you, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, they do. They believe that and we believe this. And that's kind of the way it works. Uh, but James, look what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word passions, it literally means pleasures. So here's what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's really not about them, is it? You know what it's about for you guys? It's about you want something and don't get it. And you're going to blame somebody when you don't get it. It's really not about them, is it? It's about the pleasures that war within us. We want different things. And when we can't have what we want, what do we do? I got to blame somebody. It's my fault. And I feel remorseful when I can't get what I want. Or it's their fault and I feel resentful. Uh, He goes on, he says, you desire... And you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What it says is that when you can't get what you want, rather than just, okay, I'm not going to be able to get that, we up the ante. So we, James describes, 
We covet, can't obtain, we fight and quarrel, we up the ante trying to get what we want. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures, passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? It's another one of those absolute statements. Do not love the world or anything in the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Very, That's a scary This is a scary proposition as well. It says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? If we find ourselves hell-bent on doing whatever we can to gratify our desires, that road will go in a direction, but you're not going to meet God at the end. At some point, following Jesus means, again, we have to talk about how in the world can we do this, We have to be okay not getting what we want. That's a very difficult thing, really difficult thing. I'm not just saying for you, I'm saying for us. It's hard for us because naturally we blame somebody when we can't have what we want. But anyways, in James, the same warning that we find in John, the love of the world and the love of God are mutually exclusive. Friendship with the world means hatred toward God. Uh, Again, let's be clear about what the world is. It says in this verse, you desire and do not have. We looked at that word, the word covet. That's the translation of this word. Covet means desire. It's not bad or good. It's a neutral term. It's wanting something. Jesus said, I coveted to have the Passover feast with you. He's talking to the disciples. That's a good thing to want to spend time with the disciples. So it's not just a negative word, but it can be negative. And James, he describes, you desire and don't have, the world drives us to gratify our desires, to possess what we want. James indicates that frustrated desires are responsible for fights and quarrels. Again, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't your passions a battle within you? I guess what he's saying, and... I think we can make sense of this, can't we? Do you know what creates battles out here? You know what creates these battles? These battles. I fight within myself because I want and I can't get, and I can't be okay that I can't get, and I blame somebody. And so internal struggles perpetuate external struggles. Uh, Talks about passions. Again, those are pleasures. Our passions or at war within you with respect to having what we want. you know what the problem with that is? I want you to think about that. Think about being, everybody, all of us want to be pleased, right? We all want to be pleased. You know the issue with us, though? Our pleasures point in this direction. Our pleasures are at war. So if I live for pleasure and my pleasures are at war, what's going to happen? If I live for pleasure, and my pleasures are at war, I will live at war with myself. You can't not. And that's not because there's something wrong with me or something wrong with you. We are spirit beings in mortal bodies. And what pleases our spirit, what pleases our body, points in different directions. And we don't have the luxury of not being a spirit being or not being embodied being. We are both. Our desires go this way. And that means being pleased is not something we're going to be able to catalyze long term. 
we all have to learn to tolerate distress, to figure out how can I be okay not getting what I want. That is a very difficult task. Very difficult task. Um, James, again, isn't targeting secular selfishness. He's targeting sacred selfishness, pleasure-seeking dressed up in Christian garb. Um, when we talk about the world, we think of secular culture. When Jesus talked about the world, when he told the disciples the world is going to hate you, it wasn't the secular world that he was talking about. It was the sacred world. It was the religious world. That's the world that persecuted Jesus and the disciples. So we don't deal with a lot of religious persecution overtly, but covertly we might if you're in a place and you are experiencing difficulties and you are led to believe, what's wrong with you? Certainly, if you were a faithful Christian, you would be getting what you want, right? Right? Because doesn't God fulfill your desires? Can't we trust him to do that? Yeah, we can trust him to fulfill your desires. Can you trust God to give you what pleases you all the time? The answer to that is, the answer to that is, no. You're right. You're right. It's not possible for us to have what we want. Did Jesus get what he wanted in his life? Absolutely not. Did he eventually? Yeah. But it's to follow him means to walk a path where we have to figure out how can we live with ourselves. I told you before, one of the most difficult things I have to deal with is dealing with me when me doesn't get what me wants. You understand that? Yeah. Yeah. To the degree that my involvement in church is driven by what pleases me, I am influenced by the world. Again, the world exists very comfortably within the church. Okay, here's the question then. How can we resist the influence of the world? How can we decrease our desire to possess what we want and parade what we possess? Paul talks about, in a verse, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord. He talks about, well, look what it says, that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. We're Gentiles. I don't think any of us here are from Jewish extraction. So it's talking about Gentiles. And what Paul does, he, he kind of does an analysis of people like you and I. Here's what he says about us. And at that time, ah, let's see what he says. Uh, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It describes what, there's two things that are happening here. He says, Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. They look at God and it's just, they don't think of him correctly. That's what Paul is saying. They don't have, in his time, at that point, Gentiles would look at God and they believed that there was a bunch of gods and they were always at war with each other. They didn't have a real clean image of God. And so what Paul says then, because they didn't have an accurate view of God, it created issues with their desires. And it's this 
darkness that led to this drivenness. Apparently, and this is tricky because it doesn't seem true, our image of God, if it's faulty, will lead to irresistible cravings. If we see God as the big taskmaster in the sky, that view of God will eventually lead us to grab at things and, well, it will lead us to become worldly. It is not having a clear vision of what God is truly like. If I don't see God clearly, I will become worldly. I will be driven. And that's what Paul says here. He talks about giving themselves over to sensuality to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. That's what addiction is, isn't it? Addiction, they describe as a relationship with a mood-altering substance or experience. Would you agree? Addiction? Decent definition for addiction. A relationship with a mood-altering substance or experience. We don't like the way we feel. We want to be pleased. And so what an addiction gives us, whether it's drug, alcohol, sex, buying, any one of a number of different things, it allows our mood to shift. That feels better. I don't feel so turbulent. I don't feel so resentful. I don't feel so remorseful. The problem is, with an addiction, you have to use more to get less. And so it ends up being a continual lust for more. I need more of the addictive substance or experience to get the freedom from the feelings I don't want to feel. And it's, that's a difficult process. Um, ignorance of God leads to self-will run riot. I guess, again, what's the solution? Look what Paul says. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude, that word attitude, literally spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, how can we resist the influence of the world? In this passage, the, the pivotal thing is to be made new in the spirit of your mind. It's the only place in the Bible that has that phrase, interesting phrase, the spirit of your minds. What is that? To be made new in the spirit of your minds. I think when it talks about the spirit of your minds, it's that place in your thinking where you conceive of God. That's the spirit of the mind. And what Paul is saying, if we are going to move from worldly influence to divine influence, the pivotal juncture is being made new, learning to think about God clearly, accurately. So it's not dark, it's light. So that when I think of him, I am thinking of him as he is, not as I have been mistakenly led to believe that he thinks and feels. That's why Paul would, in his time, have encouraged people, as I will encourage you at the end, you say, Mike, this is a bunch of stuff. How do we, and we'll 
If you find a place where you are hearing truth, stay there. Keep going back. Keep coming back. The need to continue to be exposed to to correct teaching about God, it doesn't seem like it's going to address the things that drive us. But it is the solution. We need to be made new in the spirit of our minds. Um, The place in our thoughts where we think about God, this needs to change. Um, It talks about spirit. It seems biblically spirit is an influence that is powerful in the Bible. When you hear people being possessed by spirits, did they have the ability to resist those spirits? Good question. A lot of times when it happened, the spirit ends up dragging people to do what they might not otherwise have wanted to do. Spirit is very powerful. Our conception of what God is like is deceitful. It's very powerful. Very powerful. Um, What he ends up saying is, we have not received the spirit of the world. Do you know the world has a spirit? The world has this, and again, I don't think it's a Casper the ghost, but it's a way of thinking. I should be able to get what I want, and I should be able to parade what I possess. I should be, I should be, I should be, I should be able, and you don't have to think of it. It kind of comes up automatically. That's the spirit of the world. That's what the world values. And uh, it says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is interesting. Godly desires are rooted in the Spirit of God. And what's the difference between the Spirit of the world and the Spirit who is from God? If you are connected to the Spirit that is from God, what you're going to be aware of, again, according to this verse, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things God has freely given us. Do you know what the spirit of God is going to try to get you to understand? What God has freely given you. You know what that is? Grace. It's really tricky that the thing that's going to allow you, allow us, to resist the influence of the world is by understanding what God has freely given us. If you are led to believe that you need to work for your blessings, strangely enough, you'll work really hard and you'll find yourself, like somebody going, under the influence of the world. Work for it. Get what you need. Earn it. And Interest, strangely, it doesn't seem so, but it's true. To the degree we understand the things God has freely given us, something inside starts to, over time now, over time, relax. And we find ourselves not living at 95 miles an hour. We find ourselves living at 60. First, well, really, first, 89. Then 88. Then 85, little by little over time, 
our ability to breathe deeply becomes a little bit greater, our drivenness a little bit less. Anybody experience this happening overnight? Anybody? Overnight. Do I see any hands? You made this happen overnight. It can't happen overnight. The brain doesn't change that fast. It's a gradual process. Keep tuning in to God's grace. That's the big thing I want you to, if you take anything from what you leave. We talk, what did you talk about at church? Well, you talked about the influence of the world, and uh, I guess God didn't like it. Okay, that was that's all you hear? Uh, that was about it. Don't just hear that. You know, uh, there was something else about grace. We're supposed to tune into God's grace. Why are you supposed to do that? Because that will help. That's the only thing that will override the influence of the world. If you go away with that, you heard what we're talking about this morning. If you want to tune into something about God, tune into his grace. Tune into his grace little by little over time. You'll find that that quest, the drive to get what you want will subside little by little. It'll never be comfortable. There'll always be a battle. But it ends up getting a little bit better. Uh, We've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Um, last verse we're going to look at. Interesting verse. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I got a question. Would you like to live self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age? Would you like to be able to renounce ungodliness and worldliness? There's one thing that's going to enable you to do that. Grace. Grace. Grace is what God gives us for free. Tune into it. Um, In order to resist the world, we need to change the way we think about God. Grace allows the love of God to eclipse the love of the world. And again, as closing, um, find a place that talks about grace. If this is it, keep coming back. Keep coming back. Keep coming back in this place. We're going to think about this week after week after week after week after week. Not always the same way, but consistently. Why would we do that? Because grace teaches us how to live self-controlled up like godly lives. That's why. It's grace that teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. So if we want to be more influenced by the love of God than by the love of the world, the way we do this is to become brilliant in the basics, brilliant in grace. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, it feels tricky. We find ourselves thinking about, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Eek. We find ourselves hearing that um, love for the world and love for you go in different directions, but then we get to the place where we see these different paths and what you tell us is that we need to be influenced by your spirit and he's going to tell us about your grace, the things you give us for free. And as 
our awareness of your promises and your grace, the things you give us for free, as that settles into us little by little, we change the way we think about you and life and ourselves and others. We become less grabby, less need to get it now. We find ourselves relaxing a little bit. It's never easy, but little by little, would you help us to see you clearly so that we might be able to be influenced by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.